Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, this week's Sunday talk. I trust that you're all doing well. And uh, yeah, we're going to carry on in uh, 1 Samuel. We're turning to 1 Samuel 13 this week. Uh, But before I begin, uh, I thought to just uh, set a bit of a scene for us. And uh, by doing so, I actually want to turn to one of the, the epic movies, uh, and or at least epic books first and foremost, uh, but epic movie as well, particularly for the scene that's portrayed in uh, one of the Lord of the Rings movies. And if you've watched Lord of the Rings, you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, uh, you can use your imagination a little bit and just think for a moment. There is a scene in uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the second movie, and it's called The Battle uh, for Helm's Deep, and it's this incredible scene where the the protagonists, they are pushed into this corner, into this place called Helm's Deep, and they are uh, in this fortified little castle built into a cave, um, and they're in this valley, and as they're positioned there, their enemy is just pushing against them. There's thousands upon thousands of, uh, in a, of the enemy building and gathering and, and, and pushing against them to, to destroy them. And it's this incredible scene. As you, as you picture it, they're hiding behind these doors of the fortified city and they are petrified because they don't know what to do. Their numbers are dwindling. They're about to be overcome by the enemy. And as they are standing, they are reminded of what Gandalf the White has told them. Uh, Gandalf has said to them that they must look to the east as the sun rises, uh, and on the fifth day he will appear. Uh, and this is an epic scene as they remember that there is this blast of this trumpet, this horn, uh, as, the, as a final war cry, and they ride out into battle. And as they ride out, they they ride through the enemy, pushing them uh, to the side. And as they look up to the east, uh, Gandalf the White appears uh, with a a replenished army ready to come and save them. Uh, And to their great relief, uh, so they they find victory in in, uh, waiting. And as Gandalf uh, returns... Uh, he is there to, to help them and assist them and save them. This is an epic scene, uh, particularly in, the, in this uh, movie, but also in how it causes the story to pr- progress in Lord of the Rings as the king eventually becomes established and he becomes, uh, he, his throne is restored uh, to him uh, rightfully as, as he deserves and, and he becomes this established and renowned king. Uh, in this world that Tolkien has created. And so this is an epic scene. If you haven't watched it, uh, you don't have to go and watch it, but just picture that as, as they are, their numbers are, are small. They give one final battle cry. They ride out into, into battle. They remember what Gandalf had said. And as he comes on the fifth day, uh, the light shines down uh, against the enemy and he rides in in victory with the with the armies at his sides and this is an incredible uh, scene but it's an incredible movie scene and it's something that we enjoy we get excited about it it's that moment that you wait for when the enemy is crouching around uh, and and finally uh, 
someone rises up ready to, to battle and bring victory in a, a moment that it's most needed. Uh, the problem with this is it is a movie and it is a story and it is uh, well portrayed and, a, and an incredible scene. And we hope for something like that when we turn to 1 Samuel 13. But 1 Samuel 13, unfortunately, is somewhat of the antithesis. It is somewhat of the complete opposite of, uh, of that. Uh, however, it has so many characteristics that are the same, but it seems to be the, the other outcome of the story. And uh, I'm going to read for us a section from Samuel 13 that we're going to look at this morning. And maybe you'll pick up on some of these ideas. Listen to this. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel. Uh, when he reigned over Israel uh, for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men uh, he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul and the uh, Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, "Yet the Hebrew, let the Hebrews hear." So Israel heard the news. Saul was attacked in the Philistines' outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilad. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, that they did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would, be, would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left, left Gilgal and went up to Gil, uh, Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. And so, as you can see, you don't need to turn to the movies, you don't need to uh, go read another book, you can read the Bible and you get this epic scene taking place. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't have the grandeur. 
that you would hope for. You hope that the outcome is going to be one where he waits. He uh, where Saul waits for the seven days to come by, and and as it does, that that Samuel rides in and he's ready to uh, to turn to God and get the favor that uh, only God can truly give as they uh, as they're waiting for this battle to to begin. But instead, uh, Saul becomes impatient. He becomes uncertain. He he can't wait anymore. He sees the numbers of his men dwindling. So that they are seeing the enemy's numbers rising and their numbers dwindling. And because of that, he becomes so fearful as he sees his own men are becoming fearful and they start scattering. And so he ends up, as we read, with only 600 men at the end. And it's a frightening scene because if you think of what the picture that we have painted in a thing like Lord of the Rings, you would hope that the, the outcome would be one of victory and one of, of absolute uh, yeah, absolute hope and and as as Samuel arrives that everything is done right and correctly, but unfortunately it's the complete opposite. It becomes chaos. Things begin to fall apart. People begin to leave, uh, and and at the end of the day, the enemy is is getting annoyed. Uh, they find Israel obnoxious, as as the NIV says, and as it unfolds. Uh, the scene just gets worse and worse, and Saul takes things into his own hands. As we are told in this passage, something that we need to pick up on is that Saul has broken a command. And I'm not going to get into all the details of the passage. There's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of things uh, that we need to uh, consider if we're going to do that. But some of the main things that we want to pick up is that Saul breaks a command. And, And what command exactly, we're not told. But what we can pick up is that there is a command. Uh, more so, if you go back and you remember what we looked at in chapter 11. I want to read this for us. Uh, and this is what it says in chapter 11, verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So that's the setting. There's Gilgal, where where Saul is established as king. But then we are told that in his establishment as king, he is required uh, to do something. And that is what we pick up in 12 uh, verse 14. We can read one part of it. It says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands... And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. And then you pick up this at the end of uh, chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. So, on the backdrop of, of 1 Samuel 13, we have this establishment of Saul as the king, this public uh, putting into place, and so renewing God as the true king, uh, but also Saul as being their king, uh, through whom uh, God uses uh, God uses Saul or intends to use Saul as the king. The king is always, the human king is always under uh, God's rule, God's reign, God's authority and kingship. But as we read in chapter 12, there is a command, there's a necessity that both king and and country, both 
uh, king in the in in the in the form of Saul here, he needs to be serving the Lord with all of his heart and fearing God, but also the people. But how the people are responding is a reflection of how uh, the king is ruling. So something that we need to understand within the the dynamic of kingship within Israel is that if the nation is rebelling against God, it's a reflection of the king's ability to rule the people uh, and to point them to God. So if a nation is rebelling against God, it's it's actually a reflection of the king who's rebelling against God. So the king gets blamed first and foremost. And so this is a very complex kind of way of thinking about it, but it's not the individuals within the community that get the flack, but actually the king uh, is as the head gets the flack, as well as then those that are under him. So that's why uh, the way 12 ends off is that it says in verse 25, yet if you persist in doing evil, both you, uh, Israel as a nation, and your king will perish. You see, it's the, the, the scary reality is that the, pin, the, the blame gets pinned still on the king as well. Uh, and it's his responsibility to now uh, rule and be a king for the people. But not one that uh, is going to take, but should be one that is going to give and protect and look after. But both ways, the, the way in which the king rules uh, is seen through the people. And so as we come to this passage in chapter 13, we have this incredible scene where we are told that Saul has broken a command. And, and what, it, what we could assume and what we can pick up from this is that Saul has not broken simply Samuel's command. If we go back uh, to, to Samuel, 1 Samuel 10 verse 8 around there, there's this idea that uh, Samuel says to, to Saul that he must wait uh, seven days. And, uh, and when Samuel comes then he will perform a a sacrifice, an offering. But what's interesting is that it's not so much that he has broken the command that Samuel has given him, but the command that God has given him. The command to trust, to fear God, and to, to serve Him with all of his heart. The fact that Saul is doing an offering out of his own is an indication that he is going around on one side, he's going around Samuel as the priest, as the one who is to do the offering. So in most cases, not always, but in most cases, it's the priest that will do the offering. And here, Saul goes around Samuel. And so he's undermining the voice of God by going around, uh, going around Samuel. But the other aspect is that he is not serving God by making the offering. And we'll pick that up later on uh, in a a further passage that that comes up. It's not about the offering, but about the heart that that we need to start weighing up. It's not so much about uh, doing the, the act of offering, but actually where the heart lies. So what's wrong here is that um, that as we look at Saul, he became desperate. He's keeping in mind the the number of his his troops were dwindling. They were fleeing. They were petrified. And he was beginning to be hard-pressed by the fact that he didn't know what to do. So he acted rashly. He acted out of uh, desperation. And he performed this offering thinking that Samuel would not come at all. And so the outcome of it is instead that he, out of his desperate heart, 
to to make sure that his troops don't leave and to make sure that uh, he maintains the image of being a king, uh, took things into his own hands. However, this is undermining ultimately God's kingship. It's undermining God's covenant that he has made with him. It's undermining God's call to Israel to remember how he has already saved them. So looking at chapter uh, chapter 12, uh, there's all these reminders of how God has saved them from Egypt and so on. And so you get this picture of Saul who takes things into his own hands and how he crumbles under the pressure of trying to, uh, wanting to uh, do things uh, in desperation. And so when, when Samuel comes on the scene, he asks, uh, he asks Saul, what have you done? Uh, so as we pick up there in verse 10, it says, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that they did not come, that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to to offer the burnt offering. So Listen to the language. He felt compelled. He felt he had to do it. And he acted desperately because he didn't know what else to do. Nothing in it is indicating that he did it because of uh, his dedication, his fear, and uh, his service to God. It was all out of his own position, out of his own identity as both king and as well as uh, who he who he feels he is in the situation and what's happening in the situation with Samuel not coming uh, to the rescue. And then it's the response that is quite shocking in verse 13. You have done fool, a foolish thing. Uh, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. Uh, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Um, if you had, you would have been established your kingdom over Israel for all time. And so we are told that Saul has done a foolish thing. What he has done is actually uh, the complete opposite of what we would expect flowing out of chapters 11 and 12. That God has established, uh, he has been re-established as their king through through what Samuel has done in, at the end of 11. That God is the true king and that they come to repentance and recognition of their sinfulness in asking for a king. And at the same time, they've been reminded uh, of who their God is, but also that the king needs to serve and fear God with all of his heart, as well as the nation. And here you expect a, a different outcome, but instead he, the response is the reversal of that. And so we find that uh, Saul acts in foolishness. He acts out of desperation, out of his own desire. But then in contrast to that, we pick up on these words. Listen to verse 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So now you get the contrast of it. Saul was asked for originally uh, as a, or he was, the nation of Israel were wanting a king. And so they, they received ultimately Saul. God appointed and anointed Saul as their king. But Saul in his failing, God goes out and he finds and anoints a new king that will rise up. A man that is fit 
for for what God intends him to do. A man that God seeks out. That's that's kind of the language that we pick up in in the in the use of a man after God's own heart. Uh, and and there is a, another side of that, but in particular that God has sought this man out in in that he fits the way God intends him to to rule or what he's going to fulfill and do. So he's not going to end up being this tall man like Saul, but instead a short young boy uh, when we see David as the first uh, king that follows Saul. And so we see the scene uh, of this king that is crumbling, a king that is falling apart uh, at the seams. And the whole setting here is is the is a f- unfolding of a king that is already forgetting uh, who God is. He's not serving God. He's not fearing God. He's not obeying God and God's command. And ultimately, he's not serving God with all of his heart. He's not acting out of that. He's acting out of desperation and not turning the people to God, not reminding the people of who their God is. And so it leaves us with the question of, well, who can be the true king? Who can be the king that is uh, willing to wait, who is able to be patient, who is able to, uh, to endure uh, even when the enemy is crouching around them? And so not to go too deep into it, into this passage in and of itself, because it's going to unfold and as narrative does, it adds elements to it and there's going to be a lot more to it. But for us today, we, we need to consider it. Well, what does this mean for us? Uh, who could actually be then the true king? We see, we see people in positions of ruling and authority failing left, right and center. And the question is, well, who can actually get it right? Uh, when there's enough people looking uh, in at a situation, there is enough uh, reason to find fault in anybody that's ruling or reigning. But there is one person that has got it right, one true king that has got it right, and that was Jesus Christ. That he came, when he came into this world, the way in which he ruled and reigned or demonstrated who he was as king, uh, it was far different to what we would have expected and we find that he is now the true king today, that he is still reigning, uh, that his, his throne, as it says uh, in verse 14, uh, yeah, it says, but now your kingdom will not endure. But we know that Christ's kingdom endures. It endures the hardship of the enemy infringing on it. It endures any obstacle. Uh, that Christ's kingdom is something that far endures any obstacle, any challenge, anything, any enemy that we might know of. And that Christ is the true head, the true king. And so it's interesting that if we look at Saul, if Saul did wrong, the, the nation of Israel would crumble under his rule, under his reign. But we see the other outcome in Christ, that through what Christ did, uh, by dying on the cross, by being raised again, through that act of obedience, by that act of persevering and waiting until the point that he had to die on a cross, that he rose uh, not only into life, but he, he brought us with him in that and that he, because of what he did, he is the head of this body that is the church. And we are under that. We are under his headship. We are under his kingship. And as a result, we see uh, Christ fulfill that perfect picture of what kingship should look like. Saul failed. And if Saul failed, then Israel as a nation would fail. And we'll see that also unfold in 1 and 2 Samuel. But 
in Christ, in Christ's success and his victory as a king, uh, as the true and rightful king, he has he has been able to reestablish God's kingdom, God's uh, position uh, through Christ. And what Christ has done has this uh, cascade effect, and it affects us today as well. So as we look to Christ as the true king, we, we, we rejoice because his throne will endure. Nothing can change it. Nothing can shake him off of it. And uh, as, we, as we look to Christ, it's an incredible reminder for us of just that uh, the victory that he has uh, in store for us under his headship. And that as we enter into his body, the body of Christ, we enter into, uh, into under his headship, under his kingship. And we are part of his, the nation. Uh, we are part of his people. We are part of this family. Uh, that God is establishing, which is a beautiful image, uh, but we only see it truly fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And so as we look at, as we just glanced at this passage this morning, there's so much more to it. But uh, as we consider 1 Samuel 13, there's this epic scene uh, of, of actual calamity, things falling apart. But as we shift uh, a little bit further in time to Christ and his his uh, entering into this world as a true as the true king, uh, we see th- how the scene should have unfolded in victory, in patience, in obedience, uh, in uh, what is not a king taking, uh, but instead a king that is giving, as he gives life, as he makes people his own, as he establishes uh, his kingdom and his nation, uh, and so. It's incredible when you when you can see that unfold uh, through God's incredible story, and so I hope that that gives you uh, some encouragement and gives you good news that in Christ uh, we are under His kingship. So no matter what we face in this world around us, we might find incredibly uh, frustrating things happening uh, and people disappointing us in position of authority and leadership. But remember that it's only Jesus Christ who can be the true king, that can fulfill the role in true obedience. And, and remember who, uh, who he is as we, as we reflect in this time that's absolute chaos. Perhaps a time that's similar to that of, of Saul's where the enemy is infringing on us. But that Christ is the one and true king that has the victory. So may that encourage you and may that uh, may be something that you wrestle with. And uh, I hope that as you do so, that you may rejoice in uh, Jesus Christ, the true and living King. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. Uh, It's a complicated one in that we look at Saul, but so much in one sense of of a failure to recognize your covenant, your command, your your true uh, kingship and who you are as Lord over our lives. And Lord, I pray that if anything, that we may truly come to know Jesus Christ more deeply and that he is the true king, the true king who doesn't take but gives, gives life, and that in Christ we have victory, that in Christ we are able uh, to be part of your body, that you have, you have woven us in uh, to the body of Christ uh, because of Jesus Christ, because of what you have done for us. So Lord, we rejoice and we thank you uh, and we give you the glory for that. 
And Lord, we pray that we will never lose sight of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. That we may continually remind one another uh, and be reminded of uh, who, who you are, Lord. And that we may uh, truly serve you and fear you with all of our hearts, but out of a love and a relationship that we get to share with you through your son Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I pray that that will encourage you. And that, uh, yeah, that maybe you want to go and spend some more time uh, reading 1 Samuel. I hope I haven't in- excited you to go and read Lord of the Rings. I'll, I'll, I'll rather challenge you to read 1 Samuel. There's plenty of action and adventure and all sorts of things taking place. So go read that and just see the incredible unfolding story of uh, God's incredible plan. And have a great week, and we'll see you all next week. Cheers, bye.